Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Christopher Rufo. Christopher is a political activist and filmmaker known for his opposition to critical race theory, or CRT. He's a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute, and he's the author of a new book called America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. In this episode, we talk about the German philosopher Herbert Marcuse and the role he played in popularizing critical theory. We talk about the legacy of the weather underground. We talk about the admiration that left-wing intellectuals in the 20th century had for Mao and Stalin. We talk about the relationship between critical theory and Marxism. We talk about the psychological and emotional appeal of communism. We talk about the effect of the collapse of the Soviet Union on the Western left. We disagree somewhat about the legacy of McCarthyism. We talk about the political leanings of public school teachers today. We talk about the strengths and weaknesses of classical liberalism as a philosophy. We talk about the teaching of CRT in public schools and much more. So without further ado, Christopher Rufo. All right, Chris Rufo, thanks so much for coming on my show again. It's good to be with you. So the occasion of this conversation is your new book called America's Cultural Revolution. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you about this. Till now, you have shown up in the public eye more as an activist than a writer or intellectual necessarily. So you, you know, people have gotten you in sound bites rather than in long form. And I think this is the the first time um, the public is getting to see you in long form. So, you know, first, how to, how does that kind of transition feel? Do you view those two things as separate projects or, or how do you, how do you view that? Yeah, I, I think they're of course separate, but definitely complementary. And, and I would agree. I think that the public has mostly digested the work that I've done in recent years in short form in 800 word uh, articles and op-eds and reports, uh, you know, three minute uh, Fox News segments and then the occasional longer interview. But, you know, I've been writing feature essays uh, for, for a number of years that certainly are kind of training ground for then writing a, a full length book. And so I hope that people get a sense of the kind of deeper foundations of what I've been doing as an activist. But at the end of the day, I think they're all complementary. They're all driving towards the same ambitions, the same goals, the same outcomes. And they're merely different means of communication for a slightly different audience. And of course, uh, written in a slightly different manner. So I don't remember exactly when the last time I had you on my podcast was, but it was in the in the heat of critical race theory being really in the news. And I may have told you in the audience this last time, but just in case, uh, when I began writing my book, which will come out in February, I remember talking to my editor. This was probably early 2020. And as part of my research, I was going in detail on a critical race theory compendium. And I thought that this was crucial to understanding how 
you know, the left thinks about race and to understanding what we call wokeness and all of that. And I think my editor said something like, well, look, you know, I, I get that you're interested in this stuff, but I don't think there's going to be any wider interest in critical race theory. And I remember being very frustrated with that. And then about two years later, um, you know, you're talking to the White House about banning critical race theory in, in, in the federal government. And, you know, every third word out of people's mouths is CRT. And I felt privately vindicated. But very pub- publicly, you were tacit I, I, and a man of tact and reserve, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. So this is a very interesting book. And I think people, uh, my audience will find it interesting. Let's just for, first talk about the title. Is there a reason that you sh- chose cultural revolution as a, um, as a reference to what happened in China, or is that just a more general term? Yeah, it's actually almost a derivative or a secondary reference. And so obviously you have the most famous cultural revolution uh, in world history, the Chinese cultural revolution. That was the the, the namesake, the moniker that they chose, you know, in the 1960s. But at the same time, Marxist and neo-Marxist intellectuals in the West saw what was happening in China and devised a strategy for replicating a cultural revolution with Western characteristics, or in our case, American characteristics. They were explicit about this. They said, we need to have a cultural revolution in the West. These are the tactics and techniques of cultural revolution that we can adapt. And this is our primary political strategy. And so the reason it's America's cultural revolution, rather than America's Marxist revolution or America's total revolution, is that starting in the late 1960s, early 1970s, left-wing intellectuals realized that they couldn't have a traditional orthodox Marxist-style revolution, seizing control of the government, seizing control of the means of uh, industrial production, seizing control of you know, large agricultural facilities. And they limited their ambitions to the domains and the transmission of culture. And so in a sense, it's a lowering of the left's ambitions. But in another sense, it's also where they've managed to be uh, extraordinarily successful. And so I delineate it as a cultural revolution, of course, in its original sense, referring to the Chinese cultural revolution, but in the specific connotation that this is a Western phenomenon. It is the method of revolution that has found its its home uh, here in our country. And this is you know, the narrative or the story or the history uh, that I'm telling. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning you, you put a lot of stock in Marcuse and him as the father of critical theory, which then gave birth to critical race theory, which then gave birth to intersectionality and what people think of as wokeness today. You're looking back at, at the roots of this entire phenomenon and not taking it for granted and asking the question, where the hell does this come from? How did, how did it become such a powerful force in American culture? So can you start where you start in the book and just give a, a kind of short summary of who who Marcuse is and why he's important as the father of this whole movement in your eyes. Yeah, Marcuse was a, a scholar of Marx and Hegel, um, you know, grew up in, in Germany, fled Germany as Hitler was rising to power, came to the United States. He actually served in the U.S. government office, the OSS, uh, doing some intelligence work and research. He was, you know, by all accounts, and you can see this in his work, a brilliant uh, scholar. That kind of old world scholarship where people had uh, a, kind of a compendium and in encyclopedic knowledge of of Western philosophy. And he was, after World War II, disillusioned with life in the United States, um, had gone to various professorships around the country, finally settled at University of California, San Diego as someone in kind of late middle age or or, or early late age, rather. Um, And he became, you know, he was one of the founders of critical theory as a discipline, but he really became uh, the, the most prominent critical theorist in the United States. And he was the critical theorist that was most 
actively engaged in partisan or, or revolutionary politics. And I think he's important for intellectual reasons and also for practical reasons. Intellectually, he developed the theories of Western Marxism, neo-Marxism that applied a, a kind of new vision of revolution to the West. The ideas that, that he um, uh, kind of pioneered or he uh, really explicated in intellectual form are still the key ideas for the left today. And in a practical sense, he had an enormous influence over academic life. Um, his most famous graduate student was none other than Angela Davis, uh, who was then a mentor to uh, the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, really their inspirational figure. And Angela Davis, of course, also was uh, responsible for generating the kind of proto-theory of intersectionality. She was writing on women, race, and class uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, these ideas were taken up very, um, uh, very eagerly by the critical race theorists that uh, translated it into a single, you know, Latinate term, intersectionality. And so you can see the transmission of ideas, not just purely intellectually, but actually personally. And so what I try to do in the book is, is, is not just uh, expose the lineage of ideas in a dry, abstract, intellectual form, but to actually put flesh and blood to these ideas, to, to show that these are the ideas of real people in time and space, that there's a transmission, um, not just mimetically, but actually there is a hand-to-hand -hand transmission of these ideas. And these are relationships across generations that have shaped where we are today. So naively, I would think as an immigrant coming to America after World War II, one of the... Um you know, a period of American hegemony around the world, massive booming economy. Uh, what about that America did he see and dislike? It's actually really interesting. And, and Marcuse arrived in America, an optimist about America. I mean, for, for some obvious reasons, obviously it's a, the country that took him in as he, as he fled the Nazis who were rising to power in the 30s. But he describes even later in life um, in an interview that I, that I capture in the book where he says, I remember coming to the United States and passing the Statue of Liberty and feeling like I had finally arrived in a, a free country where I could do my intellectual work, where I could pursue my own ideas without fear of, of repression, without fear of death, um, that of course many feared in continental Europe. And that was, you know, protected from the catastrophes of ideology in, in Europe. And, you know, he served uh, by all accounts, uh, you know, uh, productively in, in the war uh, against uh, uh, the Nazis as a research scholar doing strategic work for the OSS. Um, but he became disillusioned, you know, I think in some ways paradoxically, after World War II, in the moment of America's great uh, triumph over the ideologies of Europe and those, those, those wars of Europe, and in the triumph of the American economy. And, and he was really horrified by the American economy. He thought that uh, the, the rising standard of living, the contented middle class, the system of mass affluence in the United States concealed, buried, and really is, is squelched the very possibility of revolutionary consciousness. And he saw in American institutions a repressive system that, that provided the substitute or the false consciousness of freedom and equality, but actually uh, foreclosed the very possibility of a Marxist or neo-Marxist revolution, um, this possibility of establishing a utopian society. Um, and so he became disillusioned with the United States and concluded that um, the situation was so hopeless that, that he had to invest hope 
in uh, disaffected uh, white uh, intellectuals within the universities and uh, uh, marginalized or and disaffected um, African-American communities at the fringes, uh, at the lowest end of the socioeconomic ladder. And so he thought that the only hope for revolution was with, was, was with this new white-black uh, high-low coalition of outsiders that could put pressure on the great American middle class, that could go around the democratic structures and launder or bring in this ideology in an extra-parliamentary fashion into American institutions. Yeah, interesting. So you also you know, spend a good deal of time on the weather underground. Um, can you describe who they were and why they're an important uh, an, an important um, sort of example of the move from violent left-wing movements to nonviolent uh, left-wing projects? Absolutely. You know, Marcuse was a, a teacher of uh, and an inspiration to um, many members of the Weather Underground, which was uh, a revolutionary organization that, br- that stemmed from the great uh, uh, student movements that thought that the student movements of the mid-1960s uh, were not going far enough in their demands for, let's say, a colorblind equality, but that they needed to actually overthrow the deeper systems of the American government. And they thought, you know, for a time, naively uh, in retrospect, that they could achieve revolution violently by overthrowing the state, by planting bombs in police headquarters at the Pentagon, at the U.S. Capitol, and that these spectacular acts of revolutionary violence would cause a spontaneous mass uprising of the people against the state. And they would come in as the vanguard of the Marxist revolution. And so that was the idea. That was the plan. They actually took steps towards uh, executing the plan. But by the mid-1970s, they had done everything in their power to disillusion almost everyone in society. And so uh, everyone from, of course, the the, the kind of conservative middle class to the op-ed page of the New York Times to even many kind of members of the moderate or the center left, um, they found themselves uh, under siege. They found themselves isolated. They had really given up hope that the violent revolution could happen. Of course, this was the era of Richard Nixon and his rise to power and his stunning re-election win in 1972. And they devised with kind of in a parallel fashion to Marcuse and to other, other left-wing intellectuals of the time, an alternate strategy of, of bringing the revolutionary ideas from the fringes to the mainstream by passing them through uh, pre-existing institutions. They couldn't make a revolutionary society. They couldn't uh, uh, smash the status quo uh, through violence. But what they could do as they lowered their ambitions was pass their ideologies through the universities, through the K-12 education system, through the organs of mass media. And so that became, by the mid-1970s, their new primary strategy. And what I document in the book is that the strategy, for the large part, actually worked. And the next 50 years from, let's say, 1971, 1972 to 2020, 2021, was this great uh, and, and sometimes invisible conquest uh, of ideology over the uh, existing institutions. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's... Um... It's worth just lingering on, you know, what exactly is wrong, if anything, with with this philosophy. I mean, one thing I notice is the left wing radicals of that era had a terrible habit of admiring societies which were by every measure much worse than America's. So, you know, they admired China under Mao. They admired uh, the Soviet Union in general and even under Stalin. They admired Cuba uh, under Fidel Castro. In every case, these are societies that people were desperate to leave. And 
and yet this was the ideal, right? This was the ideal for them, um, for, for all of these radical movements. And there were just so many ideologic, ideological rabbit holes that if you go down them, what you get on the other side is basically gulags and a police state. And some people saw this at the time, but many just didn't. Now, part of that is because all of these are closed societies without real journalism. So it's, it's diff- it was difficult to understand just how bad Maoist China was when it was happening, right? Like you, you couldn't just read the, open up the New York Times and see that there was a great famine. It, we, we know all that very clearly in retrospect, but a lot of it was just willful blindness after a certain point. What was it about these left-wing radicals that made them so consistently admire societies that that are, are known to have been hellholes. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you, you captured the, the precise dynamic. And, you know, I opened the book with an anecdote from Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn was speaking, of all, of all people, to the ACL, uh, AFL-CIO labor union uh, in the United States. And he recounted a story about Angela Davis. And so Marcuse's student, Angela Davis, um, was involved in the Marin courthouse siege that left uh, a number of people dead. Uh, she advocated for abolishing prisons and violent revolution uh, against the American government. Uh, she was a you know, member of the Communist Party USA, uh, would run for president later under that political party. And she was, after her acquittal in the Marine Courthouse siege crime, she went on a tour, a kind of victory tour, to all of the satellite states uh, of the Soviet Union and, of course, in Soviet Russia itself. And while she was on one of these tours where she was lauded as the great hero, as America's political prisoner, as a champion of of, of of intersectional freedom, although not in that exact terminology, um, she was approached by a group of Czech dissidents. And the Czech dissident said, Angela Davis, you are um, uh, you were a political prisoner in your own country. You advocate for uh, abolishing uh, prisons and unjust uh, imprisonment of dissidents. We have many Czech dissidents in Soviet gulags right now. Will you advocate on, on their behalf and advocate for their freedom? And she looks at him in ice cold and says, they're criminals and they deserve what they get. You know, the Soviet state is never wrong. Um, and, and, and so I think that Solzhenitsyn used that story to expose the hypocrisy of this. And that uh, I think what it signifies in a deeper sense, to answer your question, is that, is that what they were looking for was not whether these societies were just. So in other words, they were looking to see not if these societies realized the highest ends, a just system of governance. They were simply looking for were these societies where their shared ideology had attained power. And they really stopped in their analysis at that point. And so what you see over and over is that even in the 80s and 90s, many of these figures were still justifying the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. We're still justifying uh, the, the kind of Russian Communist Revolution. We're still justifying the Third World Marxist-Leninist regimes that were just as bloody, uh, although on a smaller scale in a more dispersed fashion. And I think you see that over and over. These left-wing regimes leave behind them a trail of bodies, a trail of destruction, a trail of illiteracy, a trail of despair, a trail of practical failure. But the belief in the ideology itself is so fervent that no historical evidence uh, can falsify it, can disprove it, can guide people away from it. Um, and that's the, the pattern that I saw amongst all of the, the thinkers uh, that I profiled in the book. I mean, I think uh, we'll get to the present soon, I guess, but that pattern showed up so clearly to me in the aftermath of 2020. Um, as I'm sure you know, 2020 represented the single greatest year-over-year increase in the American homicide rate, um, possibly in American history, but certainly in the last hundred years, which is uh, an extraordinary fact. 
you know, that's just, that was just a Pew headline in like 2021, which is, which I've given lots of attention on my podcast, but I don't see get very much attention outside of that. So to have the single greatest one year increase in the, in the homicide rate coincide with a, a gigantic movement against the police, cities burning and all of the social upheaval that happened in people's, in corporations, in universities during 2020, you know, to have that essentially memory hold by the activists who caused it, you know, instantly. I'm I'm amazed at at how there is just no reckoning or um internal reflection on the part of people that supported all of the movements, defund the police, BLM, et cetera, which caused that moment. There's just no reflection on wow, I wonder what it says that all the ideas I espouse in practice led to a huge increase in the homicide rate disproportionately borne by the black community. I, I mean, I think that's right. In a certain sense, you can look at the slogan and then look at the results of as the slogan becomes public policy. And so if you had the slogan of 2020 was Black Lives Matter, but I think that the slogan negates itself when you actually look at the evidence of, you know, homicide rates in, 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 in black communities at, in the wake of some of those policy changes and at, le- at the very least many of those cultural changes. And so this is a pattern that we see over and over. And in fact, there's an analog in the 1970s that I document in the book where the Black Liberation Army, you know, which was a kind of prototype of the Black Lives Matter movement, adopted the same kind of rhetoric, the same kind of strategies, uh, the same insistence on prison abolition, prison breaks, community policing, ejecting the police from you know, low-income black communities uh, in New York City and other places. And they said in their literature, the Black Panther Party, which was the kind of original organization from which the BLA splintered, they said the number one recruiting mechanism for us is to cause conflicts with the police, highlight incidents, and in some case, manufacture incidents of police brutality, and then bring in people who are already predisposed towards violence and indoctrinate them with our left-wing politics. They, they said this very clearly in interviews and pamphlets etc. And what they started doing as they got more desperate in the mid-1970s was actually just assassinating police officers in, in New York, in Georgia, in other cities. They would find a police officer on the side of the road, sitting in the cruiser, and you know run up to their window and at point-blank range uh, execute them. And they would do things like, um, in, in one instance, a grisly incident in New York City, they executed the police officer, shot them in the genitals, shot them in the head, and then did a war dance over the corpse before fleeing. And what they discovered, as as we could imagine, is that this actually alienated the very people on whose behalf they claim to be fighting. Um, And so they found that these these communities where they said, we are going to displace the police and we will become the law. Um, But actually, they became the mafia. They were robbing, stealing, shaking down holding hostages, ruling through violence, they were rejected by the very community that they claimed to represent. And so this dynamic, this process, we saw in really dramatic scale in the 1970s and then in, you know, in a relatively smaller scale in some ways, rather less dramatic, maybe not smaller, but at certainly less dramatic scale in 2020. Okay. So zooming out, what is the exact relationship between Marxism as a theory and critical theory? Yeah, great, great question. And so, uh, you know, critical theory, of course, has a number of different uh, scholars and intellectuals. So there's a range uh, within critical theory. But if we take Marcuse as, let's say, the paradigmatic example of critical theory in the United States and as an established discipline that branched out elsewhere, what I would say is that critical theory is uh, Marxism that has gained self-consciousness and Marxism that has passed through a process of self-criticism. 
And so Marcuse realized um, very early on that Orthodox Marxism had no future in the West and more particularly had no future in the United States, which again had a strong, satisfied middle class that had been, in his view, uh, satiated by false consciousness and material uh, abundance. And so critical theory takes the basic Marxist ambition, the basic Marxist conception of human nature, and the kind of directional force of Marxist politics and revolution, but seeks to recompose it and reconstitute it uh, and adapt it to modern conditions and discard the pieces of Marxist ideology that were no longer relevant. And to Marcuse's credit, he actually wrote a book in 1955 called Soviet Marxism, that said that the Soviet, that the Marxist dream had failed in the Soviet Union. It had descended into bureaucratic tyranny. And again, to his credit, he wrote that in 1955, when many people were still believing in the dream. But what Marcuse then constructed, and, and is highly influential to, the, to, 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 to this day, is a theory of Marxism passed through the experience of the mid-20th century and oriented tactically towards success in the West. And let's say that is, at the broadest level, uh, what critical theory is. And then, of course, in the academic environment in the United States, critical theory has splintered into a thousand different sub-disciplines or has, as a kind of methodology or an epistemology, conquered existing disciplines. And the basic thrust of it is that critical theory is what Marcuse called, in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek manner, the power of negative thinking. The negative side of the dialectic, the critique of all existing institutions. And that's the spirit of it that I think is now the default spirit in academia as a whole. So it's interesting. To me, there is something circular about uh, Marcuse's point here, right? If his point is that originally Marxism meant that capitalism was inherently unstable, the working class just is by definition predictably going to rise up and overthrow the bourgeois. It was more of a prediction than a than an ad- admonition. It, it was, you know, Marx believed he was a scientist and he was predicting the cycle of of societies and that these the uprising was inevitable it simply couldn't be stopped it was in the nature of capitalist exploitation that the people would get fed up and and so forth and so you know someone like marcuse comes to america and says well people seem a little bit too happy to violently overthrow the uh, the government and they're kind of content with like you know going to the movies and you know, going to a diner and getting a milkshake and, um, you know, getting a new Ford and, and so forth. So rather than that disproving Marxism, I'm going to say, well, they must not really be happy. The happiness must be some kind of, it must be some kind of palliative, like it must be some kind of false happiness. And so I'm going to kind of reconstruct Marx, Marxism to work in a scenario where the working class appears to be too happy to revolt, but is in fact not happy. Is that sort of the, the logic? Yeah, that, that's precisely the logic. And that's, that was his basic case um, in the mid-1960s and then um, accelerating into the late 1960s, early 1970s. And, you know, he, he in a sense, still believed in the dream and was just uh, simply trying to rebuild the inner workings of the theory and the machine of politics and the the theory of action to overcome it. And again, Marcuse is not a kind of wild-eyed, reckless thinker. He's brilliant and has you know some deep insights that are tied to some tragic blind spots and tragic flaws in his thought. But he sought revolution almost at any price, which I think was his great downfall. And he saw the possibility in 1968 
for this revolution. And he merely thought that you could change the revolutionary subject. As you mentioned, the proletariat was quite happy in the United States. The proletariat had actually gotten a pay bump. They had become the middle class. And so he saw the only avenue for change as the as, as, as really the same as the BLM coalition and the kind of modern radical left coalition on race and gender, let's say. You have the intelligentsia at the top, and then you have uh, the lumpen proletariat at the bottom. And so, you know, let's say, you know, the Marxist idea of lumpen proletariat, the kind of outermost class, the disaffected, the unemployed, the ill-educated. And so to a great degree, you, you can almost see in advance why this also would not work. But he was trying to look at it pragmatically and to say, well, what do we actually have? What are the assets at our disposal? Which assets can we deploy into the political system? And for better or for worse, that's what he saw. Um, and that's where he invested his hopes. So you say he had brilliant insights what were those? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that he was, to the greatest extent possible, a critic that, that, that saw the flaws of Orthodox Marxism. He saw the flaws of the Soviet Union very early on. And I think that if you read his, his, his work, he saw some of the, 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 the kind of dark side of the capitalist abundance. He, he did, I think, touch on a very real uh, problem, which is that kind of mass affluence can lead to a loss of uh, consciousness, creativity, high culture. You know, he was, an, a, a t- till the end, uh, a kind of penetrating advocate for uh, Western high culture, Western high philosophy. Uh, he, he, he was uh, a kind of a, a, of an aristocratic temperament uh, in some ways related to art and aesthetics. And, and he was a, a serious scholar, let's say predating his more active Activist, activist ventures. You know, he was a serious scholar of Marx, Kant, Hegel, and great minds. And, uh, and so I think that you can, in some ways, almost admire certain parts of his body of work, certain uh, insights that he was fighting for, and, and, and even a certain spirit of, of utopianism at, at an advanced age, which I think was enormously attractive to so many people uh, in, in the great uh, uh, upheavals of the 1960s. And so you have these great uh, images of, of, of student protesters in Europe and the United States carrying banners uh, that, that, that said, uh, Marx, Mao, Marcuse, <laughs> you know, the three M's, that was the kind of their belief. And they thought that Marx was the, the prophet of revolution. You know, Marcuse provided the theoretical basis for revolution in, in our time. And Mao was the great sword of revolution in the third world. And obviously, to me, this is horrifying, um, but but I think that it's you know nonetheless it's incumbent upon us, even critics of these ideas, to try to understand why were they so attractive to people, what kind of power did they have, and why were they able to move societies in such a way that is not simply mechanistic, but actually moved people uh, also in spirit. Yeah. So if if I were to put my uh, I don't know my my critical theory hat on and ask why is this so attractive to people, the core of the explanation for me is that Marxism and critical critical theory um, and you know critical race theory, all of these seem to promise beautiful and utopian world where you know basically everyone is equal. No one is uh, no one has more than me. Uh, or less than me, you know, I don't have to walk past homeless people on the street, but I also don't have to look up at Jeff Bezos and wonder why that asshole has like yachts and I don't. So it eliminates the unpleasant emotion of envy from uh, my life, the unpre- unpleasant sense of inferiority from my head, the unpleasant sense of pity and um, perhaps survivor's guilt, unearned privilege. You know, I just copy paste my life right now with all of its abundance and and niceness and just delete 
all of these unpleasant emotions that I have. And then a person comes to me and says, read this book. This is available. You know, heaven is real and it, it can be made on this earth if we follow the right path. Now, in some sense, the appeal of that is so obvious. It For many people, it doesn't even need to be stated. The problem is that it's just not in the cards. I think it's not in, it's not on the menu for, for creatures such as ourselves because of, because of certain aspects of human nature, which prevent us as societies from, from achieving it. So, I mean, there's one other way, I think one really useful way of looking at it, which is, I can't remember who said this, but uh, they said, everyone is a communist with their family, a socialist with their friends and a capitalist with the world. And that gets at something profound, which is if you grew up in a really good family, you know, if you didn't have a good childhood, discount what I'm saying. But if you did, if you grew up in, in, a, in a happy family, a big family, family where everyone shares, you know, everyone has a say, this is, there's a reason people go through such trouble to create such families because they're incredibly rewarding. To live in that way is, is to experience a, a kind of daily and deep pleasure that is very difficult to replicate in the outside world. So the fantasy of living that way with the entire human race is needs not doesn't need to be explained. It's it's, it's self evident, and so the intellectuals that can come in with you know high verbal IQ and sell you a path towards that reality have been enormously successful throughout history, though they've been completely wrong in practice because they don't understand that. I think they don't understand evolutionary psychology and human nature and the way in which those things prevent the very possibility of extending the family relationship to all of mankind. Yeah, that's quite, quite beautifully put. And, and I think it was, I, I first heard that idea, that concept, that heuristic from Nassim Taleb, although I'm not sure if he's the one who originally said it. But what I've also found interesting to, to follow up on your point is that, uh, in fact, in practice, communist societies invert that relationship. So the idea, the kind of happy ideal is communist at home, socialist in the immediate environment, your kind of primary institutions are around you locally, and then a capitalist for those great structures of society. So you have competition, you have merit, you have a kind of an earned hierarchy, and you have a, let's say, uh, for, for lack of a better term, a kind of more neutral oriented space that is operating on other systems rather than a kind of forced equality, let's say, for example. But in communist societies, you actually get the opposite. You, you have a very capitalistic uh, interpretation of family life, where they say that the father is exploiting the mother and the parents are exploiting the children. And there has to actually be revolution within the family because the family itself is a system of oppression. You have local communities that are then totally subordinated to, to the state. So that eliminates that middle register altogether. And then at the highest sense, they're, they're governed in a communist way, which is, of course, forced equality. The attempt at the obliteration of hierarchy the obliteration of inequalities and the obliteration of any d distinction in faculties and virtues, as the founders uh, might have said. And that, of course, is a, a totally unjust system in practice. So they've taken this beautiful kind of uh, uh, layered system of governance that recognizes that the problem of scale has to be handled with, with some kind of differing approach. And they end up turning it on its head that creates tyranny all the way down. And, and that's really what we saw over and over in the 20th century. And I, find it, I found it, frankly, disgusting and, off, and repulsive that all of these Western intellectuals in the United States, in the post-war environment, 
particularly after the civil rights movement established, you know, kind of de, de jour colorblind uh, equality in law, that they were looking to these Marxist-Leninist regimes scattered across the third world, desperate places, dysfunctional places, governed by, 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 by an iron fist. And they were looking there for inspiration. Um, and, and, and I find it that this is this process of moral inversion that you see over and over that for whatever reason they're, they're, they're blind to. And I think it's in part for the, because of those the ambitions or because of that promise, that temptation that you described. Okay, so how important do you think the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was in dis, disillusioning American leftists? And I, I guess the, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s, and also uh, the death of Mao and the subsequent pivot in China's economy towards freer markets. Do you think that these things had an, had an effect on, on those same intellectuals in the left that had previously looked to such societies as, as a model? I think it had an effect on the trappings and the shell, but not an effect on the actual substance and the content of, of the ideology itself. And so, yes, obviously after 89, left-wing intellectuals in the United States were no longer saying that the Soviet Union was a superior system of governance. They were no longer, uh, it was kind of uncomfortable or maybe a little bit uh, uh, déclassé to say that Chairman Mao's cultural revolution might have gone too far, but it was actually great. So you didn't get those explicit arguments. But at the same time, they didn't change their basic ideology. The ideology of the left was fully developed and then frozen in time in 1968. All of the BLM vocabulary, it's all either the direct language or the refreshed language of Angela Davis in 1968, for example. And I actually think that the opposite is more true. I think that the fall of the Soviet Union was a a kind of, in some ways, had negative consequences for the right because you had this uh, grave error on behalf of conservatives in the United States and in the West more broadly, in in which conservatives in the United States who had fought communism tooth and nail for multiple generations and won the fight finally, Two, two catastrophic things happened. One is that they adopted the yoke of their enemy's uh, ideology, meaning that conservative thinking was a mirror image of Soviet Marxist thinking, meaning that whereas the Soviets were left-wing economic collectivists and materialists in that sense, the right had become and really devolved into a libertarian, uh, individualist, uh, materialist conception of politics, the kind of mirror image of one another, largely because of this dialectical conflict in the 20th century. But then at the same time, the right had essentially let its guard down. The right said, we won against communism. Communism has been forever uh, discredited. Communism is a dead ideology that will never survive again. Now we are going to retreat into private life, retreat into economic life, and we are going to essentially give up the responsibility of governing our institutions in the absence of an external threat. Well, what did that do? Beginning in the 90s, with the establishment of critical race theory, it's late 80s, early 90s where the discipline took off. You have essentially no opposition intellectually and no opposition institutionally as these ideologies then conquered department after department, institution after institution. And the right was, uh, you know, making money, was, you know, retreating to the the country club lifestyle, was taking care of their families and their businesses and doing whatever, um, which, of course, in itself, very good, um, but had totally ceded control of public institutions and institutions more broadly. And then all of a sudden, people are waking up in 2020 and saying, wait, what happened? I thought we won. We defeated communism. And all of a sudden, we have you know Marxist radicals that have reconstituted themselves, and they have risen yet again. And so my view of the Cold War, or rather the victory of the Cold War, was, a, was an unintended and a kind of catastrophe uh, in some sense. Interesting. That's a very interesting theory. I mean, I, I think there's kind of a 
another side to that. There's a flip side to that too, which is that during the Cold War, our efforts to suppress and harass anyone who was a Marxist or a communist or, you know, people that weren't even communists. But, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking just after the, the film Oppenheimer has been released. So I think people who have seen that will need no reminder of how, how insane and tyrannical and, and unjust our covert system of suppressing, you know, free speech and free association with respect to Marxism was. I mean, you know, it's like someone like Martin Luther King's job was actually made much more difficult by J. Edgar Hoover and the sort of outsized paranoia that we had to fight every, every, you know, wherever there's a tiny bit of smoke that there could be a communist, well, we should treat that person as if they are a spy and use all the resources of the covert state to, to sort of suppress that. I mean, to what extent was the long march through the institutions by Marxism, uh, by Marxists, sort of slowed down by the what many people would now recognize was was a kind of draconian, anti-communist FBI and and American state? I mean, was it? Are there two sides to that coin? In other words, when that is lifted, yeah, the long march goes through, but um, there's a lot of parts of that that people aren't proud of in retrospect. Sure. Yeah. And look, obviously, Hoover's FBI went beyond uh, the law, went beyond the Constitution in in many uh, regards and is justifiably and correctly criticized. But I think that to to another extent, though, kind of the the McCarthyism critique is largely um, uh, exaggerated and is claimed to be unjust, even in instances where it was quite just and claimed to be this massive repressive apparatus when actually I think the facts reveal that it was rather small uh, compared to the system of thought suppression and surveillance that we have today. I mean, what we have today is is, is something that J. Edgar Hoover could have never dreamed of. The, the scope and scale and intensity of it is many orders of magnitude greater than the uh, programs of the, let's say, the 50s, 60s, and uh, early 70s before they uh, tailed off. And in many cases, something that I go into in the, in the book is that if you investigate the actual facts of this, you had the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, for example, two of the, the kind of stories that I tell in the book, and the Weather Underground as this kind of, let's say, radical fringe group. I mean, they were plotting the violent overthrow of the United States. They were planting bombs in important government buildings. They were executing police officers on the street. They were robbing banks, tanking hostages, um, and, and running propaganda campaigns to try to uh, to try to pose an existential threat to the government, to the Constitution, uh, and to the American regime itself. And so, to me, that absolutely justifies uh, a strong intervention. Um, and it's not—you don't have a First Amendment right to assassinate police officers. Uh, you know, uh, you, you don't have a First Amendment right to, you know, to, to, to run bombing campaigns. And during this period, there were thousands of property bombings that were politically motivated. So you have to remember that this is a, a this is actually a live fear that the whole constitution could be overthrown. And so I, I think that the kind of retrospective criticism is, is, is actually off base. And even if you look at something like, oh, the McCarthy speech codes in California universities, that was a big 
point of contention. This is so unjust. It's absolute repression. It's, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to the point where now people say McCarthyism as a kind of one word argument. Case closed. If it's McCarthyism in any form, it's a, it's an automatic evil. But I actually went back and I read the, the, the so-called speech codes of, of the McCarthy era in California's public universities. And it was actually, uh, you know, quite quaint. Uh, and I thought quite, uh, quite simple and in some respects uh, quite surprising. It was basically, I am not a member of the Communist Party and I will not uh, uh, work to violently overthrow the United States government. And remember, these are public employment jobs. You are working for the state. And so to me, it seems the height of reasonableness to say that if you are going to be working for the state, employed by the state, and theoretically working for the great public interest on behalf of the the, the voters and the citizens and the taxpayers of our country or our state, the very minimum commitment is that you don't want to overthrow the United States government. Um, And so if you compare the those speech uh, requirements with the DEI speech requirements today, um, and you ask me which is more uh, repressive to open thought, which is more of a threat to uh, uh, kind of liberties and freedoms, which is actually damaging intellectual life in the United States more, it's hands down. The modern DEI regime is much more repressive, uh, you know, the so-called kind of McCarthy speech code in public universities in the 1960s. Though I would want to split the difference and say the first commitment shouldn't have been on there, right? You shouldn't have had to avow that you weren't a communist, although the, the second one seems reasonable. It's a good question, but I think that it's reasonable because the, the Communist Party, USA, you know, wanted to violently overthrow the United States government and was aligned with, uh, of course, the Soviet communists who had had you know, who, who, with whom we were in an, an existential conflict. And, and so, yes, I think that one is more defensible than the other. Obviously, just violently overthrowing the United States government, I think, is defensible. Let's say it's a harder argument for, for you know, kind of membership in a political party. But I think that it is, you know, um, if we even if we take it there, I think that you could say professing uh, an allegiance to a political party that seeks to violently overthrow the American Constitution and the kind of DEI style speech uh, speech requirements of our modern regime. One of those is more reasonable than the other. And again, this is not your private speech. I don't actually think you have a First Amendment entitlement to do whatever you want in a public institution. You can be a member of the Communist Party. I mean, you can run for president, as Angela Davis did, as a member uh, of the Communist Party. But, but it's simply to say that public institutions have a greater, um, uh, must have greater scrutiny and, and can impose reasonable limits that, that are, in a sense, unrelated to the First Amendment. The First Amendment, of course, protects the government, or rather protects the individual from an imposition uh, of, uh, by the government. But in this case, we're in a bizarre situation where, where left-wing activists are involved in the opposite. They're saying that the First Amendment protects the government from limitation by the citizens, meaning the democratic restrictions and prudent limits established uh, through law. And so I think that public institutions have uh, every right to establish prudent limits. I mean, you can't go into a kindergarten classroom and then preach communist ideology or Nazi ideology or whatever ideology you want. You're acting on behalf of the public trust. The public can place reasonable limits on your conduct. If you are in public employment. And so I think that it's not actually a violation of the First Amendment to say that you can't seek to violently overthrow the government and use government jobs to, to, to advocate as such, while you are still, of course, protected to be a member of the Communist Party or to advocate a revolution un, under the First Amendment in your private life. Yeah, my feeling would be that um, in practice, the meaning of all you know, party memberships and values is so contested that in order to have a public job, you shouldn't be made to disavow everything bad in the world, 
Like, you know, cause where, where does that end? Right. If I, if in order to work at the post office or in the federal government, I have to r- write a list of all the things that I'm not, I'm not a member of the Nazi party, not a member of the communist party. I do not support Hamas. I do not support. It's like, to me, this kind of thing is, is so, um, it's, I think you and I would probably agree on anything down the line. Like we would all agree that those things are bad, but I think the government should not, ought not be in the business of requiring me to disavow all the bad things in the world because, you know, often those, what that means to me might, it might mean something different to someone else. And I might be a member of the party for reasons that have nothing to do with its written aims. And, and so it's, uh, you know, those kinds of requirements make me uncomfortable in principle, right? Sure. Yeah. And I think that in a, in a certain sense, it's a moot point, right? Because it, at, at, at this point, the kind of party membership question, uh, you can belong to whatever political party you want. I don't think it makes much difference. The actual prudential and practical politics are situa- of our situation is quite different. But so setting that aside, which, you know, I agree, it doesn't make sense uh, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our country, in our current politics. There's a set of more interesting questions that are, that are a big part of this debate now, which is what are reasonable restrictions and limitations to place on public employees? This is a question that's being debated in the Supreme Court currently. I'm, I'm actually a party to one of these, uh, one of these uh, lawsuits that I think will eventually hit up to, uh, head up to the Supreme Court. But this is an important question because my basic conviction and and what I've learned through basic experience is that all institutions will have values. They will be oriented towards some vision of the good. And my argument is that given that necessity and given the impossibility of, of, of institutional neutrality on questions of ends, you must have a values flame framework. It can be explicit or implicit, but in a public institution, the, the values framework and then the means by which you seek to preserve, protect, and and transmit those values has to be a political question deliberated by the elected representatives of the people. And so in order to maintain our basic social contract between the people and the government, the people have to be able to shape the institutions of the government using the democratic process as it was intended. And they should determine the values. And when the values of the, of the institutions of government are no longer reflect no longer reflect the values of the public. When the public um, implicitly no longer consents to that form of government, they must be given an avenue by which to by which to reform that government, to restrain that government, to limit that government, and to reorient that government uh, toward their vision of the common good or their vision of the highest good. Um, and if we do not have that, even under this uh, kind th- kind of think wrongheaded a myth of institutional neutrality. You're actually not creating a neutral space, but you're creating a space that becomes tyrannical because the state protects itself from the influence of the public. And that, to me, is actually a much deeper threat than uh, procedural norms uh, that, that, that seem to be the favored uh, defense mechanism of both liberals and conservatives in the United States today. Yeah, I, th- I think this is such an interesting issue. I think at the heart of it is the fact that, and this is something I've talked about a lot on this podcast, public school teachers in this country are far to the left of the median American, right? And I've, I'm not recalling the exact stats, maybe you have them, but they're, they're, I mean, they're literally certain kinds of teachers or like health teachers or something where it's, it's almost like a hundred to one are Democrats as opposed to Republicans, as opposed to the general population, which is way closer to, to a one-to-one 
match. And so what you're finding is that we all pay our taxes and we fund the salaries and operation of public school systems and therefore have a what would seem to be a reasonable expectation that the values the schools have would be somewhere close to in the ballpark of the values that parents have. But in practice, there is just this huge divergence. And that wouldn't really matter. Like if the post office is 10 to 1 Democrats to Republicans, nobody gives a shit because their job is just to, to send the mail. But if your job is to teach my child history, for example, and what seems objective to you because you and everyone you know is 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 liberal or or even to the left of that what seems quote unquote neutral to you is going to tend to seem very you know extreme to the median parent and i think that that is the crux that, to me that's the crux of the issue and it's an it's an issue that i'm not sure to what extent american political philosophies prepared for such an issue. And so it really scrambles my own and many people's intuitions about what is the right approach to politics, you know, to classical liberalism. It's like, how do you solve that kind of a problem? I'm not sure it's a problem necessarily that someone like John Stuart Mill envisioned or could have envisioned. Well, no, well, no I actually think that the opposite. I mean, I think John Stuart Mill was, was in, in some very real sense uh, a part of the problem and, and set in motion some of the ideas that have us now arriving in this predicament. And I think if you look at, at Mill, I think you, you also get this sense where Mill's ideas, uh, let's say broadly speaking, are, are, are adopted as, 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 as ends by many American so-called classical liberals or right liberals, left liberals. But even to Mill, these were not ends, these were means. And, and Mill's ends were quite uh, progressive in nature. I mean, he really desired, a, in his own idiosyncratic way, a kind of crushing of existing manners and mores and what he saw as restrictive cultural practices. And so his method for achieving that, where some of the have now evolved into some of those kind of phrases that we have today. We could say academic freedom. Uh, we could say, you know, institutional neutrality are very million uh, notions. But I think that we've forgotten what the actual out, out objective of, of Mill was and, and why those serve that objective. And we're discovering that very much today. And so I would actually say that we need less Mill and more Locke. Um, and because Locke would teach us that ultimately, if the people do not consent uh, to, the, to the rule of their government, let's say in this case, if the parents do not consent to the ideology being imposed on their children by the state, you have a fundamental political problem that ideally is resolved through the reform of the government through the democratic process where you can regain the consent of the governed. And, and, and I agree with you, though, that we're in this very interesting dance where the kind of classical right liberal notions are, are sometimes adopted by the left and vice versa because we're in this interesting moment where I think people are starting to reevaluate some of these priors. And, and I think that it's the and, and it's a misnomer. It's not classical liberal by any means, but the so-called uh, classical liberal uh, ideal is failing in many of our institutions and has people uh, from all perspectives now starting to question them once again. Yes. I mean, I generally identify with John Stuart Mill quite a bit, but I, I fully see your point here. And so like, here's an example. My friend has, um, my friend has three kids uh, in, in the Westchester area and they go to public school and they're a mixed race family. And he took home his kid's lesson from school. This is probably, his kid is probably, I don't know, nine years old. And they have a class about culture, right? They're learning the concept of culture today in social studies or whatever it is. 
And they've got something like a 30 or 40 page kind of like slideshow about what culture is, right? This is a very broad, basic, important concept. So I see like starting on page three, they have a slide about black hairstyles, right? Some people wear their hair like this. You know, I myself used to have an Afro and what this means in black culture. I go, oh, great. That's, That's a great thing to have one slide devoted to. A great example of how different cultures wear their hairs differently and what that would mean. And then page four is also a black about black hairstyles. And then page five is also about black hairstyles. And then page six is also about black hairstyles. And then page seven, and as you see where I'm going with this, the problem in this case was not at all the choice of subject, but it was the airtime you were going to give to the subject. Amongst all the world's cultures, if you're going to introduce a small human being to the very concept of culture, you cannot give the hairstyles of one particular culture 20 out of the 40 pages, right? That can't be the whole lesson. But how do you how do you legislate that or like you, you can't legislate that it, it, it would it'd be ridiculous you oh well black hairstyles must only take up no more than two of it was like this is impossible the only way that that is mediated is through the culture of the school itself right if the culture of the school itself is steeped in this this idea no matter what the no matter what the written norms are there's going to there's so much wiggle room that it, and into that wiggle room is going to be inserted the culture of the institution which is determined by who the people are what their beliefs are um, and, and so forth that's a problem that like how do, how do you solve that problem i guess you in in principle you go to your pta meeting and say 20 pages on black hairstyles are you kidding me that should, that's it's a fine topic. It should have it should be in proportion. Like I want them to learn about Tibet and India and and Europe and you know and Rome and whatever. But again, if you do that, then Irish hairstyles. Yeah, there should be a page right, on exactly, Irish hairstyles. Exactly. But it, but I guess it, it does. I mean, the reason I give this example is because it's it's such a clear case in which I'm not sure that I could vote to change this. I could go to my PTA meeting. Nor would that be advisable. Nor, right. Yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah. C- in theory, I could go to my PTA meeting unless I'm afraid that someone's going to fail me and put me on Twitter and something's going to come out my mouth wrong and then my jo- you know, I'm going to lose my job. So how does one solve that problem vis-a-vis the norm of like academic freedom and institutional neutrality? I'm not sure there is a solution from that philosophy, right? Sure. It's a, it's a good question and a fun example. And so there, there are really two ways to tackle these questions. The first is legislation. So state legislation legislatures, and then in a smaller way, kind of school boards, so policymaking institutions, can promulgate and and codify general principles, right? I mean, a state legislator should not be uh, determining the page length of the black hairstyles curriculum. That would be ridiculous uh, misuse of time. But a state legislature legislature can have basic curricular standards, and the Board of Education can can codify them through rulemaking process and through basic standards. Okay, great. None of that would would tackle the black hairstyles uh, dilemma in Westchester County. And so the best way of handling that is exactly what you're saying. It's a question of institutional culture. So the leader of the school, the selection of the curriculum, the teachers who actually implement the curriculum in the classroom, the parents who participate and provide feedback to the school, that has to be a much more organic process. And the consent has to be earned in a much more human way. And so, you know, your friend might say, hey, this is great. We all love, you know, the various hairstyles here, but have you thought of maybe including X, Y, and Z and rebalancing this? And so that to me would be the most appropriate way of doing 
doing it. And then, you know, hiring the right people is actually the most underrated form of governance. And so you want to hire the right people that have the same kind of attitudes, priorities, the same kind of decision-making process that you would hope they would have that, that would, would recognize that and actually preemptively solve that problem. And so this, to me, strikes me as something reasonable. And in the case of something that's more aggressive, like a, and let's say a white privilege exercise in which students are segregated by race, and your friend's kids would very awkwardly say, well, which directions do I go? Do I go with these people or those people? Something that, that, that I think is actually harmful to kids and antithetical to the, the basic values of education you would have a more forceful response at that administrative level, teacher level, school board level. And then ultimately what I think is the best solution to these questions is to do now what we've accomplished in, in I think, uh, six or seven states is to provide all parents with the option to exit, a fundamental right to exit the public schools and to let them take their education dollars, seven, $8,000 a year per child to any institution of their choice. And so you can either voice uh, opposition and try to reform the institution from within to regain that, that basic consent, or you can exit and enter an institution uh, privately with that, uh, uh, with that uh, funding or with that scholarship essentially provided by the state um, so that you can have a, a private uh, consent within civil society between parent and children and the educational institution of your choice. That to me is the kind of decentralization or, or subsidiarity of decision-making that would yield, uh, you know, even in a utilitarian sense, the most happiness for the most people. And I think actually would, would also conform to this sense of the, the, the highest good. People could pursue their vision of the highest good, both through the political process, but also through civil society. One of the most frustrating aspects of the CRT debate was that it, it basically said, you know, one side was saying, we don't want CRT being taught in school. CRT is bad. And the other side would say, well, CRT... I'm not going to say whether CRT is good or bad, but it's just straight up. It's not taught in schools. It's not like you are hallucinating in other words. And, 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 and this was very frustrating because it was as many culture war debates are just a kind of almost willful talking past one another and, and, and so forth, because clearly no one is saying really, I don't think anyone meant for instance, on your, on your side of the debate, your side of the debate, that what was being taught was literally the academies that you and I read when we are reading critical race theory compendiums full of massive jargon and, you know, the 20, 20 page law review papers by Kimberly Crenshaw. So if that, if that is your narrow definition of critical race theory, then yes, you're right. Critical race theory is not being taught in to five-year-olds, but what is being taught is more of the sort of anti-racist baby. And I'm referencing Ibram um, Kendi's book, Anti-Racist Baby, which, you know, the philosophy of which is just a very watered down form of critical race theory, right? And and so, you know, your I think you played a big role in in branding the public debate and people really caught on to your language of calling it critical race theory, but the flip side of that was that it gave the other side a way of just saying of kind of weaseling out of the conversation by simply saying, well, actually technically the dictionary definition of critical race theory is not being taught in public schools. Um and that was just a very frustrating aspect of the debate as an observer and participant. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, it was frustrating to me at the time, but actually that turned out to be the, the left generally. And then the critical race theorists in, in particular, big mistake during that debate. And we were able to shift public opinion 
two to one, three to one. We were able to win over uh, you know, pretty much all of the, the major demographic categories uh, opposing critical race theory. We were able to define critical race theory accurately, uh, in my view, but also we were able to define it uh, politically in the public discourse. And this strategy of evasion, hiding, language games, while it was frustrating for me at the time, actually backfired on them. And a paper just came out from some social scientists at UCLA and other institutions where they looked at the critical race theory debate and their conclusion empirically was that conservatives won this debate by asymmetrically activating their opponents and or activating their supporters rather and demoralizing their opponents. So conservative voters were highly motivated by, by critical race theory. Conservative legislators uh, responded to that with passing legislation in 22 states. It turned into a huge issue, both electorally, but also as a matter of policy. Uh, we were able to drive home the concept and, and win over the majorities, while at the same time, the left's response, which was obfuscation, not only failed to activate their people to defend CRT, but actually demoralized them, demotivated them, even in, the, in an electoral sense. And even Kimberly Crenshaw herself conceded this point. I think a number of years after, it might have been last year, she was at a, at a kind of critical race theory summer school, which was trying to mount a defend, a belated defense of critical race theory. And, and she said that her allies, in a sense, abandoned her and critical race theory by denying its existence, by obfuscating, by trying to hide the ball, that she felt like the left didn't defend critical race theory on the merits. And consequently, the right was able to, to define it and to destroy it in the public imagination. And so I, I, I think that, you know, they, they, that in, in the end, that, that kind of verbal sophistry uh, failed to actually win politically. I mean, I think I've noticed in my life a telltale sign of sort of a bad argument is if you say X is bad and then your opponent says, well, actually, X doesn't exist or X is not happening. So rather than say, actually, you're wrong, X is here and it's good. Often a short step away from them acknowledging that X is bad is to first deny that it's happening. So, I mean, this leads to a question, uh, another question, which is that, do you think that CRT and wokeness in general has peaked? Because it it seems like, you know, as you say, it's been in the, uh, on a long march since the 70s and on a kind of quicker expansion since say like 2013, 2014 in the media and so forth. And it, you know, it erupted in an orgy of violence and social tension in 2020 and, you know, a bit in 2021. Do you think it has come down since then? Do you think it's reached a kind of local peak and it's likely to continue to abate? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think that it is, it is obviously for all of us who observe it, come down a bit from the high of 2020, ideologically, intellectually, as a matter of discourse to the point where the New York Times recently published an op-ed written by me uh, advocating for abolishing DEI departments in public universities, something that would not have been possible given the limits of discourse in 2020 or 2021. And so there is a bit of a, of a kind of reemergence of the center left trying to reassert its position within their own coalition. I think also the right has been able to capitalize successfully, especially on the CRT debate, putting the left on the defensive, shifting public sentiment. And then, of course, BLM. LM and as an institution is in total shambles. The leaders have, you know, kind of looted the organization and then decamped to their mansions. And it's certainly, a, for the time being, a spent political force. It's spent all of its political capital. And so superficially, the argument is, well, you know, wokeness has peaked and is now receding. We return, we revert to the mean. I, I don't think that is true either. I actually think what's happening though institutionally is that all of the same people who were gung-ho, you know, in, in 2020, pushing all this stuff, they still all have the same jobs. 
actually they have probably more DEI jobs and ideological jobs than the past. Um, they're still in a dominant position in the universities, for example. And while they may be embarrassed to say some of the same things publicly, rightfully, I think what we're seeing is actually a consolidation of wokeness within the institutions, not a retrenchment, not an absolute decline. And so this is a perilous moment for those of us on the political right that are trying to make progress because it's maybe receded in intensity, intensity ideologically, but I think it's actually consolidated, even if there's a slight pushback uh, institutionally at that position. And so we, we have to defeat these things, not just intellectually or not just as a matter of public opinion or public discourse, but we have to actually defeat these, uh, these, these things institutionally, which is a much more difficult challenge and something that I'm really hoping to work on in a more significant way um, in the coming years. It seems from what I hear Though you are really, you know, as much as anyone, the face of opposition to all of the critical race theorists, critical theorists, and so forth, that you have a a not so subtle admiration for their ability to change institutions. Is that right? Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, you have to give your your enemies credit. Well, you don't you don't have to give them credit. You have to at least recognize their strengths, and you have to also essentially learn from your enemies or your opponents. Um, they can be a great a teacher, both positive and negative examples. And then, of course, there's a reason why they've been able to do what they've done so successfully. And so, I think it's important to to understand that. And I think there's also this important rule that I'm more and more attuned to, which is you also have to choose your enemies wisely because your enemies leave an imprint on you. Your enemies actually dialectically in some ways define who you are. And so you have to be very careful and very deliberate in how you see conflict, how you seek conflict, how you avoid conflict, how you conduct yourself in, in political conflict. And, and so you need also to choose kind of worthy adversaries. You, you can't choose trivial adversaries. You become trivial by reflection. And I, I think that that is um, something I've spent a little bit more time thinking about in, in, in the last year or two. Okay. Well, Chris, this was a very interesting conversation. There is a lot, just a lot of meaty material, interesting historical and current material in your book that we didn't get to. So I encourage people to get the book. It's called America's Cultural Revolution. It is uh, in a way a different, but similar, thematically similar side of, of the Chris Rufo to what you may have known in the past. So I really encourage people to get it. And I, you know, I, I assume everyone listening to this knows where to find you online and so forth. So I don't really have to ask you to do that, but it's, it's really been a pleasure. And I hope that this process of promoting this book is interesting for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I appreciate the time. And I'm very much looking forward to, to reading your book when it comes out in, uh, in February. And I think it will be part of this great conversation that all of us are having from, I think, you know, sympathies, but also slightly different angles on this on these issues. And so um, I look forward to yours as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.